And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Davis Guggenheim is one of America's most brilliant and impactful documentarians. You may know him through his work on An Inconvenient Truth, the Academy Award-winning a film about Al Gore's campaign against climate change, uh, or uh, Waiting for Superman, about the state of public education as it impacts on families in the inner city. Well, he comes by that honestly. His father, Charles Guggenheim, was also an Academy Award documentarian and one of the early producers of political media. I met uh, Davis, when we collaborated on films about Barack Obama for the 2008 and 2012 uh, Democratic conventions uh, and came to appreciate his talent and his wisdom. I sat down in L.A. with him a few weeks ago to talk about his life and career. Davis Guggenheim, my, my friend, so good to see you. Um, you know, I we, we first met on, at, uh, during the Obama campaign in 2008, but your name uh, was obviously familiar, familiar to me, not just through your own work, but because I was a media consultant making television ads for candidates, and, and your dad's name yeah. was uh, familiar to me. Tell me about, about him and about growing up around uh, documentarian and, and one of the first media consultants in in modern politics. One of my first memories was um, 1968. My father waking me up and saying, "Do you want to go to work with me today?" And I remember saying, "It's dark, Dad. Why? Why, why would you go to work in the dark?" And he's he uh, he said, "Come with me." And we went um, and we boarded Bobby Kennedy's campaign, his presidential campaign plane. And we were flew to West Virginia, and we were in some West Virginia mine town. And the way my father would do it, he'd put regular people in a circle, and Bobby Kennedy would be sitting in a chair with his—you've seen the pictures—with his sleeves unrolled and yes. his tie loosened, and talking to people. And in, the, in those days, it was pretty romantic. But but it's a different—that that was a different job back then. It was a different job. But in a sense, uh, we've kind of come full circle in the sense that people are hungering for authenticity. Yep. And the thing about that was, it was t- it, he really took a documentary approach yep. to television advertising. He he did he did the ads for Bobby Kennedy in that race. Yep. Uh, you were obviously a kid. Years later, did you get a chance to talk to him about that campaign? Is sort of a a legendary yeah. campaign. Eighty-two days, uh, the country was falling apart, yep. and Bobby Kennedy was really sort of viewed as a, kind of a last hope by a lot of people mm-hmm. to save the country from yep. the abyss. And and then he's killed. Was your dad there that night when he was? I was in. I was sleeping. I was five. I was sleeping between my parents when I remember the phone ringing. Uh, Kennedy was obviously here in L.A. At the Ambassador Hotel, we were in D.C. and I remember my, the first time I ever saw my father cry because he loved Bobby Kennedy. He had done his senatorial campaign, and to give you a sense, um, what he made as a political piece of quote advertising was a thirty-minute film that played on all three networks uninterrupted. That sounds quaint, but. Imagine what you can get across in 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, you as a communicator, you can get into depth. You can get into detail. You can't be superficial. Um, and so I think my over time, my father, who worked for Adlai Stevenson before, but also Mondale. Yeah, he um, did an ad in 56, one of the first ads for Adlai Stevenson. Right. He worked for um, Al Gore Sr. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, you know um, – we had bumper stickers from floor to ceiling of all the campaigns my father worked on. And as kids, we just loved the buttons and the going to the conventions. He did McGovern, which is a famous um, campaign for being poorly run um, with Gary Hart. Gary Hart was a campaign manager. And Warren Beatty. Right. The three of them were sort of the, the media advisors for 
there's the they were the team that advised McGovern, and that was a very criticized campaign. But the evolution of my father was that he loved doing it. He was passionate about issues. But as the system changed, um, and as it became very quickly um, a system where it became 30-second ads, he became disenchanted. Because the more it became about 30-second ads, the more those, those ads became expensive, it was much easier to be negative, you know, and much more effective you know, to be negative, and he he hated that. He he wouldn't make a negative ad. Never did. Yeah, that'd be tough. It'd be tough to get by today uh, with that policy, right? Did um, he did do a thirty second? Maybe it was a sixty that will go down as one of the great political ads that uh, in a losing cause. And many, by the way, many of the mo- the best political ads are done for candidates who are going to lose because the the ad maker has more uh, can throw long on the ad <laughs> but you know you'll know immediately the ad I'm talking about which is the ad for Al Gore senior yep. when he and Al Gore Jr yep. are riding horses Al Gore Jr having come I guess come back from the right. from Vietnam yep. and Al Gore senior was going about to lose his race in Tennessee because he opposed the war yep in Vietnam, and this was an ad, and the voiceover was a, was something beautiful about uh, having to chart your own course. Yep. And uh, the two of them riding off into the sunset on a white horse. Yeah. 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 Did you? Yeah. Uh, you. You, uh, you were still a kid when that happened. Yeah. Did you ever talk to your dad about that? Oh yeah. Any any he, he um you know Gore Senior was the first Southern Democrat to come out against the Vietnam War, and he would have won if he hadn't. At the same time, and Al told me this later when we made Income of Truth, he loses the election in November, obviously. Christmas Eve, Al Gore Jr., who had enlisted and certainly could have gotten out of it, Christmas Eve, Al Gore ships off to Vietnam hmm. <laughs> to serve in a war that his father came out against and lost and ended his, his political career. Um, coming out against so uh, the irony is incredible just returning to Bobby for a second because he was one of my uh, political heroes your father did uh, a a film about about him that won an academy award what what was it about Bobby Kennedy that he communicated to you and that you think his film communicated Um, because I think Bobby Kennedy was the most intriguing political figure of my lifetime agreed well, you have to include Barack Obama. Yeah, but I think, you know, I'll tell you, Davis, and I've said this before on this podcast, but uh, when we were talking about the 2008 campaign, I said, look, you're you're too young to remember, but I lived through the Bobby campaign of 68. I was a kid, but uh, really inspired by it because uh, it gave those of us who supported him a sense that we could change the world and yeah. that there were big things at stake and they were worth fighting for. Yeah. And we had to try and recreate that. I think we did recreate that sense in that 2008 campaign, 40 years, uh, 40 years later. But Bobby Kennedy was a, was, was a really complicated, interesting guy who inspired, like all the reporters who covered that 68 campaign, mm-hmm. uh, you know, were – emotionally attached to him you yes. talked to John Harwood his father yeah. was the covering the uh, race for the the post uh, i think he may have been the guy who was holding uh bobby after he'd been shot in yeah. in la and all of them had this real attachment yeah uh to him because there was something very real about him well um yeah my father felt that way very deeply loved him he became not just a name of a politician, but he became the the idea of of a kind of poetic purity in politics. Not to be alliterative on purpose, I'm not. But um, he was deeply felt. I mean, we would quote his speeches at the around the kitchen table, and um, there was a feeling like he was above politics. In politics and above politics, and I think that's how you feel about that's how we felt feel about Barack Obama that he 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 understood it, managed it, but he had a poetic vision for the country, and um, he also had the ability to speak to 
uh, disparate segments of our society, and particularly people who felt dispossessed. So right. he was as comfortable in Appalachia as he was in the inner city um, and felt uh, this uh, burning sense of advocacy for everyone who he thought was getting screwed in the deal. There's and it makes me th- – today's yeah. politics makes me think about that because, um, you know, it's we have these hardened lines that are hard to cross. We just saw it in the election that's passed. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a guy who could – who had managed to knit together uh, minorities and uh, white working class mm-hmm. Appalachians and mm-hmm. uh, liberals, and it was, it was interesting. Yeah, they were a dynasty. They were a wealthy America, Irish-American family, and yet – and you might say today, well, Bobby, don't go to the Appalachian – don't go in a white shirt with a tie, you know, or don't do it at all because people are going to suspect where, you know, where your roots are. That footage, it's in my father's film. It's of him putting his, I'll never forget it, he's putting his head on this very poor young black boy's head. And you feel Bobby's compassion. You know, it, Jack was gifted and a great president, but Bobby had a, it, feel, it felt like Bobby had an open heart. Well, his heart was opened by tragedy and, yeah. and loss. Yeah. I mean, those who speak about him in his earlier years uh, suggest that he was a little less tender before he lost his brother. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that tragedy caused him to become very introspective and emerged a different person. So Bobby was assassinated, is it May? Is that June. Right? June? Yeah. Um, the convention's in August, and in that time, Ethel calls my father and George Stevens Jr., who is yes. how we met, Yeah, um, said, Great can you producer. make a film Can yeah. you make a film for the convention? And my father made that film in how many weeks? Is that, you know, eight or ten weeks? Not a lot of time. And um, um, it's for those who are on the convention floor, many couldn't get in. My mother couldn't get in to the 68 convention in Chicago. They played that film on a 16-millimeter projector and projected it. And apparently, from all accounts, the convention stopped. People stood up and they sang for three hours, just arm, to put, arm in arm. Yeah, that, just to put this in context, that was the most calamitous convention maybe in the history of the Democratic Party. So this was a respite in the midst of what was out-and-out warfare between the party regulars and the anti-war forces and so on. And the one thing that held them together was yeah. um, affection for for Robert Kennedy, who had passed away a couple of months earlier. So let's talk about you and your path. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere, and it's natural that, you know, you had an aversion to going into yeah. the work that your father had done, not just in television, not just as a an ad maker for politicians or a filmmaker for politicians, but he was a great documentarian. Yeah. Um, what was your concern? Well, he made great documentaries. He made films about the Ku Klux Klan. He made films about the Johnstown Flood, a lot of social justice films. Um, he won four Academy Awards, and he was nominated for 11 or 12, I can't remember. And out of college, I was thinking, I'll never, how can I get outside of his shadow? And I can never be as good as him. And I remember... May of 1986, graduating, and thinking there's no room for another documentarian. You know, Ken Burns has it all wrapped up, and and it felt like the genre or the the documentaries were the way they were going to be forever. And there's no room for me. So I I got in my Volkswagen Jetta and drove out to L.A. thinking I I'll, I'll do anything. I want to be a Hollywood director, but I'm never going to make documentaries. But you knew you wanted to be in film. Yeah. And was that always the case? Yeah. I don't see a lot of filmmakers whose sons want to become lawyers or doctors. It's sort of a degenerative (laughs) (laughs) DNA sequencing thing. Uh But um, yeah, and um, I lived in my father's production office. I sat next to editing machines. I was on all these shoots, um, loading film and stringing lights. And I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I just didn't think I could ever come close to what he did. I revered him. I never, I thought he was the most gifted writer, director, storyteller, historian that I'd ever met. 
And how could I even come close? I don't want to leap ahead because I, I, I want to pick up your storyline here, your own narrative. But um, I'm curious, did you ever have this conversation with Gore about uh, following a famous father into the same field? A little bit. A little bit. I mean, his is so, his. he was in a similar situation, but very different. And I think... Um, um, it's famous that his father, I forget which convention it was, where his father's on camera on network television, primetime saying, you know, before Gore was running for president saying, I, I've been coaching him to be, pre- he'll be president one day. Like that was, so that was the opposite. My father wanted me to do whatever I wanted to make me happy. I think Al was, um, his, his father was pushing him very hard. Not just to be in politics, but to be president. Which his father wanted to be and never achieved yeah, uh, that yeah. goal. Um, he also, I mean, he, he ra- rather than following his father into the, the business, his first uh, foray was into journalism. Yeah. And when he went to Vietnam, he was a, as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And, um, For Stars and Stripes. That's right. But also he was, excuse me, I, I'm, and... Some Tennessee paper. He was. A, mm-hmm. He was a Nashville you know. Tennessean. But the, but the point here is, um, it, it's tough. It's tough to, um, to have a famous parent in the field in which, yep. you uh, choose. In politics, it's 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 most difficult because that you're so exposed. There, your dad was famous in his field, but behind the camera. Right. And, and, and no one, it wasn't like he was famous to anybody else. He was just famous to me. Um, but I was also lucky that my father. He was famous to me, too. Right. I mean, anybody who follows right. this stuff right. uh, knew his name because he was a pioneer in this field and also because he, uh, I, I'm, I love the sort of cross pollination between politics and documentary yeah. work because I think it's the most authentic way to yeah. communicate. So you went out to Hollywood right. and you you went into the showbiz side yeah. of, of yeah. Hollywood. Yeah, and I just got regular everyday starting jobs. I, I was a, um, basically a PA, production assistant on the film Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Dry, and, and Which my, part was your assignment? <laughs> right, right. Uh, it was the videotape part. <laughs> no, but I was, you know, Steven Soderbergh was my age. Had moved to L.A. from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, directing his first movie. Didn't have a car, so my job was to drive him to the production office. And I was just, you know, a wide-eyed kid, and uh, and and worked my way up. Became a television director. Directed shows like NYPD Blue and ER. Ended up, I directed um, and produced the first season of Deadwood. Some really fun, great work. Um, that and, so so. How do you, you know? First of all, there, there's a there's a lesson in this. I always get asked like, how kids say, well, how do I become you? How do mm-hmm. I do what you do? Yeah. And um, it almost always begins with. I mean, uh, my path was slightly different, but it almost it, it almost always begins with take whatever lousy job you can get yeah. and then learn as much as you can yeah. and do all everything that needs to be done and you'll if you've got talent you'll be you'll work your way up the uh my father was my first great teacher and my second great teacher was david milch mm-hmm. who wrote nyp he was a yale professor was brought out to write episodes of hill street blues and then became the genius behind nypd blue and then asked me to do deadwood with him and he always used to say, and I think this is true, it's apropos to what you just said, is said the best way to make God laugh is to tell him your plans. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, to, to get to how I got into documentaries, I was my dream was to do a feature, and I had found and developed the, the, the script for Training Day, the movie with Denzel Washington, and I'd sold it to Warner Brothers. I'll make a really long story short. And... Um, we fought over who it should, be, who the lead actor should be, and um, I wanted Denzel Washington. No one wanted him. Black actors don't sell overseas. Could it be Clint Eastwood? Could it be Kurt Russell? No, I insisted it has to be Denzel Washington. Finally, we offer it to him on a Friday. On Monday, he says yes. On Tuesday, he fires me. Wow, that's cold. Cold. Never met me. I still haven't met Denzel Washington. 
But the point what is... What was the basis on which he did that? I mean, I can only... It's only hearsay. I mean, I was certainly not a A-list director at that point. I'd done one film and a lot of good television. But he hired his wife's best friend's husband. Who was that? Who Antoine Fuqua. Mm-hmm. Good director. Yeah, and, and he won the Academy Award. I remember sitting in bed with my wife saying, here it comes. He's going <laughs> to win. And I was the only one who wanted him. That was a gripping movie. Gripping movie, uh, I will say they screwed it up. Okay. But that's not that, that may be the that may be the bitter. Uh, uh, but I, I could have made it better. I, I don't have, <laughs> knowing you. I don't doubt that, Davis. But uh, but I'll tell you. So I um, went into a huge depression. Uh, all my work I'd made making it work in Hollywood for so long, working my way from a PA to a director to a feature director. All my plans had crashed, and in fact, weirdly, the people I was working with, executives at Warner Brothers kind of turned their backs on me. Rather than saying, hey, let's help this guy who got screwed over, it's like, well, let's pretend he doesn't exist. And about six months into my sort of morass, and, and, and I was doing nothing, I was spending the day in my pajamas, um, I was reading about friends of mine who were in Teach for America. Uh, uh, and this was like the second year of Teach for America, and they were driving into East L.A. and Watts, and they were becoming teachers. And I said, I, I, um, I'm going to make a movie about them. So I bought a camera. I remember $900. It's like a prosumer camera, half consumer, mm-hmm. half half pro. And um, spent a year following five first-year teachers. Shooting yourself. And suddenly I was a documentarian. Yeah. we. I want to pursue this. We're going to take a short break. Yeah. We'll be right back with Davis Guggenheim. So you go from big cinematic movie productions to you buy your own camera, your own sort of yeah. uh, makeshift, as it were, camera. I mean, uh, which is, by the way, probably the cut leading edge of how documentary work has changed yep. over time because you can be much more portable. Yep. But um, And you start shooting these folks who are teaching. What, 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 what evolved from that? Well, in some respects, nothing has changed. I'm still telling stories. I'm still trying to figure out character. But tell me about that story. That This was the first one that you did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is – I guess what I'm interested in is take me from what you were doing to this – and because it all seems like of a piece, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. telling a story, except now you're telling real life story. Yeah. And so that's where documentaries, I think, have changed, which is that, and this is talking about the people who came before me, that particularly Michael Moore and Errol Morris, in that interim, documentaries were changing really fast. You know, Michael Moore showed that documentaries could be entertaining and funny. And Errol Morris proved that you could bring in traditional narrative elements into documentaries. Some people had done it before, but basically documentaries had been sort of a piece of journalism Mm -hmm. and um, stuff you would see on PBS and stuff my father had done, very worthy, good stuff. But now it's like the the genre was was turned upside down and you could do anything. And so a journalistic – my father had made several films about public education, but this was very different. This was taking people inside of the experience. Yeah. And and the, you're right. With mobile cameras, you could just – I could put a wire on a teacher and sit on the floor and film them all day. Yeah. And so um, suddenly I was back in the game, but it was my game. And over time, I realized I'm completely left alone. I have all my independence and I am in charge, which by Hollywood standards is very rare. Even if you're very successful, you still have a bureaucracy, a studio, notes, all this huge machine which is saying, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you, you do what you want until we decide that you're not allowed to anymore. And um, what, what it soon became is like I, I started loving making documentaries. I was telling stories that I loved and they were mine, David. They were – I could do – you know, and, and I was in heaven. And the, uh, the film – uh, it was called the first year, right? The, mm-hmm. Your that that film. Um, so, what what did you uh, in, fo- in in following these teachers? What did you what what was the story that you ended up telling? 
you know, the style of that movie is very different from my style now because it was very undeveloped. And, I, and a lot of people carried me. There were other camera people and a great editor who I ended up working with a lot named Jay Cassidy who cut the first the two, mm-hmm. 20, 2008 convention film who you've met. Great editor, has since edited American Hustle and um, other great movies. Um, but it wasn't me yet. So my style and my sense of voice. What had, was the impact? What was the story itself? Yeah, yeah. So, so the story itself was how, what's it like to be a young, ambitious teacher with big ideals, throwing yourself into the some of the toughest schools in America. To me, I knew that that was that was interesting. And um, how do they make it through? What happens to them? Do they get better? Do they? Anyway, you know, it's 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 it, it could easily have been what's it like to go to Iraq. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, more akin to war than it was to what you would imagine school to be. These were really tough schools. And, and you know, two weeks of training and you're thrown in. And um, but at the you know, there's a there's a theme that comes through in all in my movie since, which was not by any design, which is that finding heroes in unlikely places. Mm-hmm. I was so moved by these teachers by their dedication, by having an idea and following through with it, by believing that every kid in America can be educated. You know, I was so moved that I had to tell their stories. But they were heroes. I mean, they were, you know, the hero's journey. And like That was in 99. Any of them still teaching? Some of them. Some of them are principals. A couple Hmm. have dropped out. Um, I don't have the latest update, but several are now leaders. Like they run charter schools. They run their principals of schools. Some of them are out. But they're, you know, I wanted what they had, which is a sense of purpose. And I hadn't had it yet. But now I'm making documentaries and I do feel a sense of purpose. And um, so, I, you know, um, now I'm on a run. I'm like, I, I, I want to, I'm in a hurry because I got films to make. All right, we'll move on. Okay. <laughs> now, the, uh, don't, yeah, you know, don't put directors on your show. The they want to steer it in ways you don't. The want. world, uh, the world came to know you uh, through your your movie, the in, uh, An Inconvenient Truth, yep. which was in certain ways the most improbable yes. film ever. Yes, because Al Gore, now not vice president anymore, but on a, a, a crusade really to yes. try and do something about climate change, would travel the world with his slideshow. Yep. And make a presentation around that. That doesn't, on the surface, say great cinema. A man with a slideshow. So I what, felt the same way. Yeah. So what? 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 When did it occur to you that hell, this could be a great movie? Well, uh, it was pitched to me. We've got Al Gore giving a slideshow, and I said, "This is to Lawrence <laughs> Lawrence Spender, famous producer, and Laurie David, wife of Larry David, but yeah. a, but a pretty s- smart Big, uh, and poli- huge environmentalist, huge environmentalist, and a political insider." And I said, "This is a terrible idea. Climate change, I get. Any politician, not so much. Al Gore, particularly not, because you know he, he wasn't popular at the time. I didn't know him. And a slideshow." And Laurie, to her credit, said, come to the Beverly Hilton where he's going to give his slideshow. And it was like a Thursday in the middle of the day and it was like chicken and, mm-hmm. got, and you know, and uh, and um, wait. And he's giving it while the waiters are bringing the food. And it was sort of like, well, what am I doing here? And he starts a slideshow and it's like, well, this is interesting. And by the end, I'm uh, taken this I don't know how to do this. I've uh, seen the show. I mean, obviously, I saw the movie. I've seen him do the show before the movie or after. Well, I saw it after. I saw him updated. Yeah. Uh, sadly, there's the, the updates are even more. Yeah. Uh, bracing. Yes. Um, but uh, it's he's pretty animated. He's pretty he's pretty passionate. I think his true calling is to be a great professor. I think he has an incredible skill to take really complex ideas and communicate them to people like us. And he did that to me that day. And I think, you know, as much as I try to choose my movies, the good ones choose you. And I was like, I don't know how to do this, but let's do it. And we made that film from the day we got the money from Jeff Skoll 
founder of eBay mm-hmm. and the production company participant, to Sundance. We made that movie in five and a half months, which is wow, crazy fast. And the day I, I thought it was going to be, I thought it was a, it was a good idea was Sundance. I mean, it, people went crazy. There was a standing ovation that lasted for half an hour, and we, you know, and it was it was a phenomenon. You bracketed the presentation with interviews with Gore, mm-hmm. uh, and um, elicited from him uh, stuff that you know people who remembered him from his presidential candidate days thought of him as pretty locked down, yeah, pretty programmed. Talk lots of talking points, not a whole lot of connection. Yep. So, how did how did you how did you elicit something more from him? We did twelve interviews, and I would say the first nine are not in the movie. And what I quickly realized after interviewing him, you know, we would we'd interview him, and and he would be the guy that everyone knows, and. and I have a lot of sympathy for it because he was a candidate his whole life. And you see this in Hillary, right? You see someone who's so programmed to get the right answer and punished for the wrong answer that they become that way. And then when we turned off the camera and the lights went off, he'd say, come to dinner, and we'd have dinner with him and Tipper, and he'd be the most warm and funny. And and so I said, hey, let's do interviews without a camera crew. So me and him with microphones in his hotel room. And I'll never forget it. We were in the presidential suite of the um, hotel here in L.A. So he finally made it, huh? <laughs> and, uh, um, and we sat there. And we were there for so long that the, 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 the light that had been coming in the windows faded. And by the end of the interview, we were talking about the 2000 campaign and his loss. And it was heartfelt and deeply painful. And he revealed his struggle. And we both looked up and realized we were both in the dark. The interview had gone so long and so deeply, we had both lost ourselves. And um, from that interview and one other became the heart of the movie. Um, and so you used it as voiceover. Yeah, and... Um, you know, he was on stage for the slideshow, so you didn't right. need to see. And and I find this now for most of my movies, I take people off camera. It's much more. You, li- you interestingly enough, I mean, your podcast is one of them. Sometimes you listen better. Yeah. When you're not looking, and and um, and people not only do you listen better, but I think people uh, perform less. Yeah. I think people are more willing to have a conversation if they don't have a camera. Uh, in their face, particularly if you're a trained politician, where that's like a yeah. mental uh, a mental cue. But it must have been exhilarating for you to have that breakthrough. That yeah, that sort of yeah. This is the stuff I was yeah I was after yeah. And uh, I've now done that with all my movies. I start every movie now with just audio interviews. So even if it's Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, and that's one of the ways I got him to do that movie was. I said, "Hey, let's you know, don't worry about it. You know, just we'll just you and I will sit and talk." And after three days of talking, he feels like, "Oh my gosh, I'm I'm saying things I never thought I would say before." Because, and um, you think that um, there was a way to elicit? You know, actually, uh, Shonda Rhimes did a film for the convention. Yeah, but but Hillary herself, I thought was more uh, was more connecting. I agree in the interview portion of that film mm-hmm. than she was in the speech that followed. I agree. Uh, she was in her kitchen, her hair was down, metaphorically, and um, and Shonda probably did a really good job of interviewing And she her. was speaking in conversational tones. Yeah. Some of this, David, is... I, I always think about the venue at which we, t- we tell our stories. I mean, you must feel this with your podcast. Mm-hmm. You have the time to follow uh, a tangent, to wander and discover something you never expected. And usually those are the most interesting things in the, in the political world when you have 30 seconds. You know, that that's, doesn't happen. Do you think that there was a way to, if you, if you had the opportunity, do you think you could have elicited something more from Hillary? I thought about it all the time. And um, 
I mean, first of all, there has to be a willingness and I don't know her, mm-hmm. so I don't know, but, um, I certainly feel like my she, impression is that she worries about not making mistakes and therefore she is, she self edits throughout. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, um, I think there's a similarity between her and Al, um, both very smart, both, both very impressive and accomplished, but you know, and I don't blame her. I mean, and they both, honestly, they both, they both, they had parallel experiences. They both were, were, uh, viewed as um, inauthentic. They were viewed as too um, uh, scripted. and uh, I mean, it, They've you know, both followed natural politicians. Right. And, uh, you know, um, yeah. And um, so I, th- I think about that a lot. You could hear it. I'm a, I'm a, I have an acute ear for tone. I'm sure I know you do too. And I could hear her trying to find a more human tone. It was in her convention address. I thought she did a pretty good job. You could hear her going there and then pulling out. Um, and uh, and I, I say this really sympathetically. I, I feel like, you know, all the things that she was beat up for, many, many things, some things, you know, she deserves to be scrutinized for. Other things, you know, it, it, she does not deserve to be punished for a lot of these things. So I, I, after... That ma- that many years, I would be on guard as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's hard to open your your heart if someone's going to step on it every time. Yeah. Well, that's the na- you know, but the nature of running for president. I want to talk to you about how we first met. Yeah. Nature of running for president. Yeah. Is that you have to be able to open yourself up, and people have to be able. I, I think that being the, the authentic candidate almost always wins. Not necessarily the best candidate. I mean, but, you know, say what you will about Donald Trump. But, you know, you don't have to ch- talk about a guy who doesn't edit himself. Right. You know where he, you know what he thinks. It goes uh, direct from, you know, sometimes from his frontal lobe right to your living room. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but that, but then it doesn't seem... It doesn't seem like BS to people, right. and I think that probably connects Agreed. Uh, as a result of it. So uh, I got a call from George Stevens, a great producer, right. uh, uh, in uh, 2008. Seven. Was it seven when he called? Well, we, we filmed in July of 2007. So Is that right? I think so. For the convention? Yeah. No, so. because the convention was in 2008, but it doesn't matter. No, I think you're right. In 2008. Yeah, okay. but but here's the but he's we he knew we needed a convention video and right. he pitched you to do it and we uh, worked together on that project. Yeah, and you spent a, a bunch of time interviewing mm-hmm. uh, a, a Barack Obama then, who was not a mm-hmm. candidate, uh, yep. who was not president at the time. He was a candidate for president. What were your impressions of him as an interview? Um. Because he can be, he's not, he doesn't, doesn't all come tumbling out sometimes no. with him either. And I think reserved mm-hmm. uh, about some of his personal life as he should be. Um, first of all, you, he has an aura about him in the same way Bobby Kennedy did. That um, just a goodness and a, a sense of principledness and a sense of history and a just a natural eloquence that you just... Mm-hmm. It was one of a kind, and um, I think as we were talking about this idea of having time to talk, I think he's better with time. Well, meaning, meaning, if you give him a forty-five minutes for a speech, and he's that's where his full. Well, even in a, you know in the interview format, he'll. I mean, it used to drive us crazy because of the demands of modern media that he would take seven minutes, eight minutes to answer a question. Yeah. And often would back back into the point he wanted to make. Right. Um, you know, he, uh, maybe, but, but, uh, but incredibly eloquent. Incredibly eloquent, but, you know, sometimes like a law professor. Right. Could get into, you know, the 12 shades of an idea when... So, I, I, you know, his, his best moments for me is his speech on race mm-hmm. speech at the convention this year speech in the in charleston charleston yeah um and can, you can count them all but he's better with time 
Um, and so the challenges for us was how do you do something? I mean, challenge for you was how do you do it in 30 second commercials? And you did a brilliant job. We had longer. We had what? I forget. 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, talk to me about some of these other projects that you do. You mentioned Jimmy Page. Right. You did a, a, a piece on rock guitarists. Yeah. So that film was with, it was called It Might Get Loud, Jimmy Page, The Edge, and Jack White. I did a film called Waiting for Superman, which was sort of a... No, I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I want to get yeah, yeah, to that okay, one. Sure. But, but that one, talk talk to me about the... Because that's a completely different thing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the films yeah. you've done have had have been sort of social impact films. Right. But this one was something else. Yeah, and I've done films, other music films as well. But to me, I see them very similarly. You know, even in my political films, at the core of them are people. And uh, that, and in many ways, the guitar film, I might get loud, is more about the path of an artist than it is about how to play the guitar. You don't learn anything about how to play the guitar in that movie. But you certainly fall in love with these individuals. And so that, I feel like that's my job is to do what you're doing now to me, which is to to drill into people's hearts, mostly their brains too, and, and to extract their story. And almost like I'm a birth mother. And I say this sometimes when I start a movie. I was like, you know, let me help you tell your story. Well, now that you've put it that way, I will say that... I have to labor with certain burdens that you don't in telling that story, like saying, we have to take another short break and I'll be back with Davis Guggenheim. <laughs> Waiting for Superman. You had done a film on education and the challenges to, for these young teachers and trying yeah. to make yeah. a difference. You came back and revisited yeah. public education. Why? Well, um, because I, my heart was with these original teachers who were there and I saw, I don't think if I had not been in these five schools, East LA, Watts, Compton, um, other schools like that, where I just saw what's at stake. You see it in Chicago, um, where you see the American dream either happening or not happening. You know, it is. And you see beautiful minds being either saved and that sounds like a cliche, but it's absolutely yeah. true, saved by a great teacher. And then you see sometimes a school system crushing a kid. And so I'd had time, about 10 years, to watch and observe the political system, having experienced it and been immersed in it. And I'd seen a lot of my friends who were teachers become principals, and some of my friends who are now in... And I started to really examine the, the political system. And I said, wait a minute, there's... And your kids are in private schools. Yeah. And, um, and so I, when I was asked to make this film by participant, they approached me and I said, no, I've made that film and I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. And then Thomas Friedman wrote an editorial in the New York Times about witnessing the lottery at the Baltimore Seed School. And it was in Just Gen- a lottery to get into a, char- a very highly successful charter school. Yes. And, uh, you know, where, you know, they, they literally have a bingo um, basket and they're pulling out numbers and if you win these pa- families are jumping and, and in the article I thought it was maybe overdone but in, after doing the movie it's not P- families are cheering as if they've won a million dollars because and, they have some hope for their kids because they're getting into a school where there's hope and um, and then um, families that are despondent because they're not in and to me I, I saw that as a metaphor for um, not just charter versus district schools, and we'll probably get into that because it's that's a comp- looking back another ten years later or so. <laughs> we look at charters differently now, mm-hmm. but um, I found that to be an incredible metaphor for. And Warren Buffett called the um, ovarian lottery. Yes, you know, my kids have won the ovarian lottery. They're born to a family that can afford private school, and the only so then I said, well, I don't know how to do this, and so the only way to do this is if I put myself in the movie. I've never done it before. I say I, I start the movie with I drive past right. three private schools, on the, I, excuse, I, I drive three by public three public schools, schools yeah. on the way to my kid's private school, and um, I'm lucky, but other kids are not, and and um, and um, so that movie 
you know, follows these five kids and these five families trying to find a good school. You took a lot of heat yep. from the teachers' unions yep. for yep. this film. Yep. Uh, what kind of – and you had – I think you had Randy in the film, right? Yep. And uh, not necessarily in ways that she ultimately appreciated. Right. Um, but in her own words. Randy Weingarten, the head of the yep. t- National Teachers' Union. Um, what – you're a generally progressive guy. Yep. Uh, probably in a pro pro labor kind of guy. Yeah. So uh, definitely. How, how did you go through the in your own mind? How did you process all of this? Well, um, I knew what I was doing. I knew it would be tough to to make a film criticizing the teachers' union, but I also knew that it was true. I mean, you what ta- was true? You talk to any principal. Not any principle, but most principles, and ones that are trying to change the system, ones that are trying to do right for their kids, and they say unions and the rules they have are a huge impediment to what they're trying to do. It's just true. And I had to figure out how do I find a place for this because I'm I'm a lefty. I believe in unions, and um, and yet it was not only an impediment; it was the impediment. How long can you keep a teacher during the day? Can you fire a bad teacher? Um, can you just um, or promote a really promising young teacher? Right, and um, and time and time again, teachers, teachers, and principals and other leaders were saying this is a big problem. And I and I said, look, if we're gonna if we're gonna get into it, um, I gotta get into it. I gotta I gotta I gotta get into the even if it's gnarly, I'm gonna get into it. It's such a hard question because on the one hand, it seems to me that we don't value teachers enough yep. in our society. You know, we value people by by uh, their income-producing right. power, yeah. and yet we live in a time when education is the key to everything, yep. and certainly the key to the ch- a child's success in a way that it never was before. Uh, and so teachers have a this sacred role, and we're asking them, particularly in these inner-city communities, to play a much larger role than tr- teachers yes. did generations ago. Absolutely. So you want them to have... Uh, the all the benefits and emoluments that yep. that a community can afford, yep. um, but it's a different kind of job than other jobs. And so, do unions do they act like traditional unions and uh, protect their members and get the best benefits they can, or are they partners in the educational process? I think they're still struggling to figure out how to blend those roles. I agree. I agree. And you know. It's I, I learned something. I learned the limitations sometimes from a piece of media. You know, the movie is if you. I've since done other films in schools, and I'll go in there and I'll scout a school and I'll meet the principal. And halfway through the meeting, they'll figure out that I made Waiting for Superman. Half of them will take me around the school and introduce me to everyone because they're so proud of the movie, and half of them will kick me out. Because it's so loaded. The people who kick me out, I invariably say, have you seen the movie? And they say, no. Mm-hmm. The movie has, and we were really careful about this, the movie is very pro-teacher. It talks about the art of teaching. It yes. talks about, um, it criticizes the, the unions. Randy did a really great job of saying the movie was anti-teacher. The movie is not anti-teacher. It's, it criticizes the union. And there's a great moment that we worked really hard on the movie. Jonathan Alter, I'm mm-hmm. sure who you know, you know really journalist, thoughtful, yeah. really good journalist, Fine journalist, a lefty, criticizing the unions, um, criticizing a lot of the way public schools are done. Really smart. One of my favorite writers on public mm-hmm. education said, "You can hold two disparate ideas and put them together. One is that teachers are the solution; they're a treasure. They're the solution, but their unions are often, not always, an impediment." To progress. That's what he says. It's in the movie. And it's sort of the pivot of the storytelling of the movie that helps me and you understand what's going on. The audience couldn't accept that. Or at least the conversation after the movie came out couldn't accept that. In the. There was kind of binary, either you were for or against the union. Yeah, and I'm sure you felt that when you were working in the White House, that, mm-hmm. that a, a complex idea could not be absorbed. Yeah. You either were this or you were that. Right. 
And yeah. it was it was heartbreaking for me because I I said accept me as someone who loves teachers uh, who loves teachers and who who believes in unions unions but I, that, you know suddenly I became the pro charter guy which is not the case and the you know anti union guy. Well, I'll tell you I think that um, if we 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 have to solve these we have to solve this problem of public education particularly yep. in underserved communities or this, these. These gaps that we already have yep. are going to become yep. chasms that consume us, if chasms can consume us. Yeah. And um, and so these issues have to be yeah. worked through. I agree. Um, and then Malala, that was another of your opuses, your great yeah. films. Yeah. Talk about that. Um, I got a call from Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald, who are... Hollywood producers, they ran DreamWorks and they said, would you be interested in making a movie about Malala? And I, This uh, wonderful young woman, Pakistani student who, who spoke been, out for the education of children and was almost killed by the Taliban for doing it. Yeah, and, um, and uh, I read her book that weekend and I came in and said, absolutely. I mean, and, um, an incredible experience. I mean, it's, it, what's, what is so incredible about this job I have is I'm a Jew from Washington, D.C., and now I'm spending two years of my life with a Pakistani family and sitting in their living room and, yeah. and sharing stories and learning what it means to be a Muslim in this, in this world. One of the great privileges of my life. And she sees as good as you can imagine. Won the Nobel Prize. Won the Nobel Prize. You've, you make it a habit of dealing with Nobel Prize winners. Gore won one <laughs> as well. Or maybe what it is is when you associate yourself with people, they win the Nobel Prize. Is that possible? I don't think so, Dave. Um, <laughs> the I want to ask you about – you mentioned you're a Jew from Washington. You grew up in Washington. Your dad moved your family yeah. from St. Louis to Washington. Yeah. And that's where you were raised. And you were raised in the private schools of Washington yes. in yes. that – Kind of uh, that the political community essentially the the, the private political yes. community there. Um, so it very fair- much was that you know the uh, if you went to private school you were in one strata and if you went to public school you're in another strata. Who were among the do, were there people who were prominent in political families who you went to school with? Uh, all the all of Bobby Kennedy's kids. Mm-hmm. Chris Kennedy was in my class. Rory Kennedy was a couple classes below me. Max Kennedy. They're all there. Children of senators, children of uh, congressmen, governors. So here's my question. And Washington was a very small town. Yeah, it was, it was small. You um, and now you've spent the last many years in Hollywood. Yeah, I'm really, really interested in sort of the relationship between Hollywood and Washington. It becomes more obvious during campaign seasons. Yeah, um, but it, it's uh, you know these two towns seem. Similar to me in some ways. There's yes. a pathology to the two towns yes. yeah. that seems similar to me. And then there's this weird affinity for each other. Yeah. We talk about the pathology first. Well, it's clearly true. I mean, both are drawn to each other. And I have to say that I'm in the ghetto of Hollywood. I make documentaries. So I don't – I like to see myself I'm giving separate... you absolution yeah, so you. you can answer honestly. <laughs> I mean, they're both one-industry towns. They're both – you know, you get further by networking, um, who you know. Um, there's a kind of celebrityness in both. I also think that not always the case, but often the case, there's something you have to be, there has to be something broken in you to, to want to be successful in Hollywood. And that brokenness. That scratch, the itch that you can't scratch, or that thing that you need to fix about yourself, becomes that drive that you see all that extreme behavior in Hollywood. You see it in actors and directors all the time. Yeah, and celebrities. It's like needing. Well, I think that's. I think, and I think that is the the gene that is common to both this need for approbation, right? That comes along with celebrity, right? Uh, whether it's the celebrity of being in public office or the celebrity of being a Hollywood yep. star, now of course celebrityness is is a career in and of itself. Yep. We even have presidents who have that quality. Think of one. Name <laughs> I'm one. just saying at random. <laughs> um, but it's un. It seems you know unhealthy yeah. to me. But on the other hand, it's what probably drives people. Uh, 
to 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 achieve things that are yeah. admirable. Do you think that that's was always the case? You know, before media became such a big part of it, do you think Washington, Washington? in the in the in the fifties and sixties? No, I mean, I I think no, I don't. I actually think that um, public service was. I don't think people went to Washington to become stars because um, that was really before television came to the forefront. Right. I mean, it changed with JFK. Right. He became sort of a, a, a matinee idol right. uh, on television. That's right. And That's right. I think what happened over time was as party organizations dissolved, the, the bosses weren't choosing candidates. You were running in popular primaries. We democratized the process. Anyone with money and drive could uh, apply for these jobs. Right. And many of them could win. And politics changed and um, not necessarily for the better. I don't, I don't think you have people who come to office with the same thirst for governing, the right. same feel for politics at its best. Right. I think you have people who are very hungry for celebrity and so hungry for celebrity that they're desperate not to, not to lose it. That's right. And right. I, you know, I think that um, and losing sometimes in politics, being a good leader, you have to lose. You, well, you, you're saying I'm I'm willing to lose, and I think less and less that's happening. Well, on more than one occasion, when I was working for Barack Obama, he, you know, my job would be to brief him on the polling, mm-hmm. and more than once, many more than once, uh, he uh, many times more than once, he would say, yep. "Well, that's interesting, but we're not going to do it that way." Because it's not. This is the right thing to do, and he honestly believed believed that there were worse things than losing an election. So I always joke that I, I like him so much because he listened to me so little. <laughs> but uh, but to me, that's the ideal yeah. that you want in a public yep. uh, in a public servant, and and I think the ideal that you want in um, in any creative pursuit is someone for whom the work ultimately. Yep. Is what drives them, and not the, uh, and not the celebrity. You know, when people talk about backroom deals and smoke-filled rooms, that was a, when I was growing up. That was a negative connotation. That's where, you know, right. the nefarious activities happened. Right now, I look at that a little differently. Right? No, the, the, I think we all. I, when Tip I O'Neill a, would, yes. would would sit down with his opponents and with Ronald Reagan, with Ronald Reagan, and say, "Hey, let's figure this out, and let's do. You know, I'll give you a little bit, you give a, give me a little bit, but let's do something that's right. Yeah, but and, that, and not and not in, not in front of cameras. Well, for a whole variety of reasons, that would be the the you know you could do a whole movie on partisanship and the the coarsening of our politics that would yep. be really interesting. Yeah, uh, but you know the political re- if if survival in office is your impetus and you've got this very polarized electorate then uh, it's very risky to be willing to compromise because you antagonize your base and so a lot of politicians are unwilling to do it and it's it's made it harder to govern you know when i was in college you know i was taught about you know cycles right you know there's times when corruption mm-hmm. comes through and it cycles out and um and I want to believe that we're going through a political cycle and that things will get better. But then I can't help but feel like the phenomena that are, that are causing what's happening now are here to stay. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I, I'm, I don't know the answer whether we've we're, gone through we've gone through some pretty dark times in our politics. Yep, and a lot oftentimes it's driven by these kind of revolutionary changes in in um, technology yeah. the industrial revolution was a good example right um, and we're going through another one of those now um, and we and we're we've had a self-correcting quality to our democracy and ultimately you know and I say this to people who are unhappy with the result uh, in this in this election if if it does nothing else but remind people that elections have consequences right. and that you need to lean in and not lean out, mm-hmm. uh, then I think um, the, democracy will correct itself uh, again. And, you know, uh, I think demographic changes, generational changes and so on will bring about uh, a different kind of politics. But, um, I hope you're right. Yeah. Well, on that prayer we end. On that prayer we end. Davis Guggenheim, always good to be with you. It's a privilege to be on your show.
and to be I, I should thank you for all the collaborations we've we've had over the last few years one of the great privileges of my life thank you to work Same. with you and the president thank you Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.